The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today is Thanksgiving. We want to give thanks for you. And we want to give thanks for everybody who has been on our podcast, who is being active and doing what they can, whether it's just telling their story or starting an organization like our guests today to battle this horrific pandemic known as drug and alcohol addiction. We are dedicated to helping with that and we are thankful that we can do it, that we have the means to do it. And we're thankful for each and every one of you who listen. So we hope that you have a blessed holiday season and that if you need treatment, you get into treatment now. And if you know someone who needs treatment, get them into treatment now. Please don't wait until the new year. Addiction doesn't take a holiday. Addiction doesn't stop just because Thanksgiving happens or Christmas or New Year's. It doesn't stop. It continues. And I would rather wish on you that you are not with family and friends for the holidays while they get treatment than you lose somebody during the holidays. So please get help. Today's episode is episode number 241. And a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and please give us a good rating so that more people can find us and get our message of hope and help. Also check out our YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up on our videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So today we actually have two individuals on the podcast today. One of them was on the podcast way back in the beginning. He was on our podcast in the first year and he had um, a personal loss and we'll have him tell you about that. But he then went off to start an organization. His name is Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. He's a retired U.S. Navy Admiral and he served as the ninth vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which if you're not familiar is basically the military um, group, if you will, the military council that advises the president and advises Congress. He um, is now a director or advisory board member for several companies operating in a broad spectrum of business sectors. He, dist- he currently serves as distinguished professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs and at Georgia Tech, where he's also a member of the Engineering Hall of Fame. After their loss, he and his wife, Mary, co-founded the nonprofit organization SAFE Project, and SAFE stands for Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic, a good, if not star high, but a great goal to have. The other person on the podcast today is the executive director of SAFE Project, and her name is Brandy Izquierdo. She is a person in long-term recovery, so we'll get to hear her story, and she also has firsthand experience with incarceration. Brandy's passion for service work and knowledge of recovery support service extends beyond behavioral health. With a master's degree in public administration and a bachelor's degree in government and public policy, Brandy is currently working on her doctorate in public administration with a specialization in administration justice. Her drive and determination are built on making an impact within behavioral health, 
promoting long-term recovery and ensuring communities are educated and have the tools necessary to combat the addiction pandemic. So without further ado, and after I silence my dog, let's talk to Admiral Winnefeld and Brandy Izquierdo. Admiral Winnefeld and Brandy Izquierdo, Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm excited to hear your stories and I'm excited to hear all about Safe Project because as you know, Admiral, when we spoke before, Safe Project was just kind of in the in the baby stages. So tell us your story. How did you become involved with Safe Project and the whole addiction area? Well, Joni, thank you. And it's really a great pleasure to be with you. And thanks for what what the two of you do um, and advocating for way, any way we can to overcome this terrible epidemic in our country. Uh, we, uh, my wife, Mary and I got involved in this uh, through the journey of our son, our younger son, Jonathan, who uh, grew up in a Navy family, moved all over the place um, and developed anxiety and depression as, as part of that journey. He was misdiagnosed as being ADHD, was prescribed Adderall, which is probably one of the worst things you can give to somebody who has anxiety, and eventually discovered that he was using alcohol in the evening to come down off of the Adderall. He didn't start out as a party boy or anything like that. One thing led to another. He, he started using harder drugs, smoking weed, Xanax, that sort of thing, and, and eventually had a couple of incidents that were hugely concerning to us where he was put into great danger. And we felt we could no longer keep him safe. <clears throat> so we put him into treatment, which was a, a discovery process all its own, as you can imagine, with the way treatment resources are in our country right now. Uh, uh, it took about a week. And with the good help of a friend of a friend, we were able to get Jonathan into a treatment facility. He was in treatment, inpatient treatment for 15 months and did a marvelous job. It was very difficult for him at first, as it is for everybody. Uh, gradually, he bought into it and got his emergency medical technician qualification, was very proud of that. And we decided that it was time to uh, transition him back into society. And the way we were going to do that is to send him to college. And he got into the University of Denver. It's very interesting because uh, every year the uh, University of Denver asks its freshmen uh, that are coming in to write an essay. And the topic of the essay uh, in 2017 was, who has had the most influence on your life? And of course, I would love for it to have been me, his dad or his mom or something like that. But he wrote this powerful essay about uh, being on an ambulance ride while he was getting his EMT qual and finding himself on the floor of a McDonald's bathroom in um, New Haven, Connecticut, uh, performing CPR on a man undergoing a heroin overdose. And he writes about how he was wondering if the man would make it through the night, uh, how his family would feel if they lost him. And, and dedicated himself right then and there to helping people who couldn't help themselves. And it was, it was one of those sort of touchdown moments for us as parents, like, okay, John's back, he's there. Little did we know that very shortly after that, he relapsed. And we did not know that he had an opioid problem ever until we lost him. But uh, it turns out that on his fourth day of college, he uh, expired due to an accidental overdose of fentanyl-laced heroin in his dorm room at University of Denver. And you can imagine what a devastating moment that was for me to get that phone call. It's horrible as a parent to lose a child, no matter how you lose them, drowning, car accident, disease, overdose. 
Uh, and at the, it was at that point that that Mary and I sat down and said, well, we can either crawl into a little ball of anger, sh- grief and shame, which we still do sometimes, uh, or we can try to do something about this because we we know how to get things done. After a 37 year career in the military, we have friends who can help us with funding this sort of thing. So we decided to to start Safe Project. And it was not long after that, of course, that we met you and I was on your podcast for the first time. So I'll hold your listeners in suspense for a moment uh, while uh, until we tell uh, the story of where we've come over the last several years. But uh, that's how we got into this. Thank you. And I will just say it again. I am so unbelievably sorry for your loss. It's just not something that any parent should ever have to experience. And it's really why we do this podcast, because we're parents and grandparents and we're quite passionate about it. So, yeah, well, this, thank you. And, and uh, it, it is really why we started Safe Project is because we don't want other parents, families, brothers, sisters, friends uh, to go through this awful, awful experience um, uh, with people who are suffering from a disease, not a moral failing. Understood. Exactly. So, Brandy. Your turn. What's your, what's your background? Where did you grow up? How did you get involved in this area of addiction? So for me, um, well, I grew up in Maryland, uh, you know, and quite frankly, I have to say that addiction blindsided me. Um, I grew up um, in an environment where there was a lot of addiction around me, and I did not want to be one of those people. And that's what I thought um, early on in childhood that I, you know, never be one of those people. So I really tried hard um, not to be, but the bottom line, and I think what resonates with me so much with Sandy or Admiral Winnefeld is the fact that a lot of my story is very similar to Jonathan's. Um, it started off dibbling and dabbling with alcohol and marijuana use. Um, I have a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, I didn't know how to define it. And my youth started at the age of 11. Um, from there, it just continued to progress over time. Um, you know, I was married to my ex, now ex-husband uh, for about 19 years, high school sweetheart type of thing. Uh, we had four children together. And to fast forward, honestly, the only reason that I knew that I had a problem was because I found myself in a jail cell. Um, And I was facing a year and a half to four years in upstate prison in New York. I'm sorry, not New York, in um, upstate Pennsylvania. We're doing work in New York right now. Um, And then I also was facing 11 years in a Maryland uh, prison system. And, you know, sitting in that jail cell surrounded by concrete walls, it was what happened to me? I don't even understand how I got to this point because I didn't recognize that I had a problem because I wasn't those people. And it wasn't until I uh, was transferred over to treatment and understood that addiction is a disease, not a moral failing, that I and I was surrounded by other people like me, that I realized, okay, maybe I can do something. And, you know, in recovery, we're taught to give back um, what was so freely given to us. And when I got out of a lot of that situation, I still had to clean up a lot of the wreckage of my past but I found myself giving back through service work and also changing my profession. And that was within the behavioral health arena. So I uh, developed um, my career through peer support where individuals with substance use or mental illness help others in the behavioral health system navigate those systems. 
And slowly I realized through that process that I was hitting a lot of brick walls when it came to policy or getting access to treatment services. And I said, okay, well, people change policy. So let me go in that direction. And from that, I found myself moving through um, my professional career in administration, uh, being very vocal as an advocate in recovery. And finally came across um, this organization. Now, mind you, I worked in uh, local behavior health authorities, health departments um, for the Behavior Health Administration for the state of Maryland, and also on a national level through uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery. I worked there for a little while. And this organization came across and it was this like this empowering organization because I knew personally, not only for myself, but for my children and the trajectory of, of the disease of addiction, how that can manifest even in my children, that there has to be something more. I didn't want to focus specifically on recovery. There was so much more to this, you know, with my personal experience through trauma, law enforcement, um, the child protective services, all these different aspects that everything had to work in tandem. And Safe Project came across, um, and I had seen an article with Admiral Winnefeld and his wife, and it resonated with me. And it was just weird because they were offering, or uh, you know, they were they had a position for an executive director. And mind you, working for Admiral Winnefeld, I was like, I'll never get this position. <laughs> There's no way. Um, but I took the risk and I said, why not throw my hat in the ring? The worst that can happen is they say no. And I still, I mean, Admiral Winifold does not know this, but I still have the voicemail when he called me and said, we want you. Um, and I save that to this day, just to remind me of how grateful I am for my recovery and teaming up with him and working hand in hand, um, with family members who are also experiencing this or who have experienced this has just been the journey of a lifetime. And it gets me teary every time I talk about it. We feel like the lucky ones uh, having her leading our team. So thanks. I, I can see that. And I, I understand that. Brandy, how long have you been clean and sober? I have been in recovery for 10 years, over 10 years now. I'm coming up on 11. Ten, that's, that's amazing. And I, I have to say it. I think I say it every time we talk to someone who is in recovery, very well done. I know if there's nothing else I know, even though I haven't personally been through it, after talking to as many people in recovery as I have, I know it's not easy. So very, very well done. And I also want to address what you were saying about those people. You know, I think so much of what we try, what we've tried to do with the podcast, and I know that you guys run up against as well, is the stigma of addiction. And so many times in our early podcasts, we would say addiction is not the dirty homeless man under the bridge. It's the upper middle class boy like Jonathan or or girl like some of the others that we've had on the podcast. It it knows no economic boundary. It knows no religion, no no family setup, nothing. You know, we've had some who had horrible upbringings. We've had some who had perfect white picket fence upbringings. And it, it doesn't matter, do you know? Anyway, so I had to comment on those people. And I know you feel the same way because you see it. It's, it's every walk of life. Okay, so 
Admiral, how what happened when you started Safe Project? How did that get going? What 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 was your first kind of foray into that area? What did you do? And don't forget to unmute. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so um it was remarkable that sitting on our couch in our living room dreaming up this project. Uh, first of all, uh, as anyone who's ever started a nonprofit, the minute you start researching how to start a nonprofit, it's daunting. It's like, "Oh my god, this is going to take a year to get off the ground." But we were very fortunate in that we had uh, uh, a organization called TAPS, which is Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, which helps uh, military families who lose a loved one. They do a remarkable job with that. And we had actually helped them raise money uh, before this tragedy happened to us. And they took us under their wing for a few months while we actually got our nonprofit approved. So we were able to start right away with the things that we believed we should be doing. And we gathered together a small team initially, and now we've got a decent team, Brandy, probably of about 15, 20 people. <clears throat> I keep, I lose track of the numbers. <laughs> um, but we, sitting on that couch, and literally in the days after we lost Jonathan, we, we thought about how does this nation solve this problem? It's horribly complicated. There's no one single lever that you can pull that suddenly makes everything go away. And we literally dreamed out uh, six lines of operation right there, um, jotted them down on a napkin, basically, that have formed the core of what it is SAFE believes needs to be done. And I'll tell you what those things are in a second, but we basically uh, uh, matrix those against the four key audiences that we have that we reach uh, as an organization. Now, the six things we believe need to be done, one is you know public awareness, which helps us get rid of public enemy number one of this whole crisis, which is stigma, and also uh, convince people that we need to put some resources behind this or we're just not as a nation going to overcome it. So public awareness, um, full spectrum prevention, which to us is about credible voices talking to the most vulnerable audiences, you know, high school kids and college kids and the like, and, and other, you know, all walks of life, all black and brown communities, you name it. Um, but getting, getting messages of, of loss that they can live vicariously through, like Jonathan, but getting messages of hope also, like Brandy's, uh, in terms of you can conquer this disease uh, and it's a lifelong journey, but you can do this. Uh, so that's the, the full spectrum prevention piece. We also have a line of, uh, that's um, uh, prescription medicine and medical response, which is a whole lot, you know, getting doctors and dentists to be more responsible in prescribing things. It's about uh, the, some of the drug disposal pr uh, processes we'll talk about here in a little bit. It's about uh, making sure that the nation understands that it's easier to prescribe an opioid than it is to prescribe buprenorphine, which can help you get off of the opioid. Uh, that whole um, thing that you're so very well aware of, Joni. And then another one is law enforcement and justice, which we all know we're not going to arrest our way out of this crisis. Uh, but there are some very key things that the law enforcement and justice system can be doing to help um, rather than hinder. Uh, treatment and recovery is an obvious line of operation. We, we found in our early days with Jonathan that it was very difficult to find treatment. Uh, but at least there's a, a directory out there now. And, and um, you know, I, from SAMHSA, you can find a, a place. And we have a, a, actually a, a, lo, a treatment locator on our website that's very user-friendly. It's like TurboTax, where you can very quickly, it won't take you a week like it took us. Maybe you can narrow it down to four places to call within, you know, an hour. And then the last one is family outreach and support. Because if we knew then, Joni, what we know now, we would still have our son with us. We just didn't understand this whole problem, not even close. And, and so we do everything we can to help people who are in crisis or before they get in crisis. 
And we matrix those six things across safe campuses, safe communities, safe veterans, and safe workplaces. Those are the areas we're trying to reach right now. Uh, so it, it, it's emblematic of the complexity of this problem, but we're doing the best we can. We know what we're good at now after three years, and we're really trying to scale that up now even bigger uh, by uh, kicking off a new fundraising campaign where we're trying to raise around $26 million over five years to really attack this problem. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. That's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless <laughs> listening to you because you, you approached this, it seems like to me, excuse me for evaluating, with the viewpoint of a military man, um, and I'm familiar with that. My dad, 32 years Air Force, full bird colonel when he retired. So you really approached it from that viewpoint. And I think that's largely why you are as successful as you are, because you because you did it that way. I'd never heard of TAPS. That's that's fascinating that that is an available organization. organization. Um, but uh, just, I mean, I, anyway, very well done with how far oh. you've come and, and very well done just for doing it. Because I remember you telling us the exact same thing when you were here before. You could either fold into yourselves and give into the grief and the guilt, or you could do something about it. And I think the fact that you and Mary decided to do something about it. Wow. Yeah. Well, Huge I think thank we'd you. feel more guilty about it if we didn't do something than, yeah. and, uh, than if we did. So, so it's a, it's a labor of love. And again, we wake up in the morning. We encourage the people who work for safe to wake up in the morning. Our only goal, you know, we're not trying to compete with any organization. We're not trying to become the preeminent, you know, what you call it in, in this space. <laughs> we're happy to cooperate with other organizations any way we can. We just want to try to help save a life. That's awesome. I mean, that's a perfect goal. goal. We kind of have the same one ourselves. So, Brandy, what what is your part in all this? Give us give us a little bit of you know what you do, how you fit into this, and I think maybe the question is, what is not my part in this, right? Um, <laughs> you know, um, you, you know what's really interesting from my background, it, particularly in behavioral health, is when I first came on board, it was like, okay, what's the mission? And the mission was very broad. And as Sandy mentioned, I mean, if you whittle it down, it's just how do we save a life every day? 
And that was kind of a really, that was really a really big challenge because how do we save a life every day through all of those different initiatives? Um, and it was really, how do we, how do we get out there and we cross collaborate and cross pollinate with other organizations? I mean, how do we think broad, but also how do we remain boots on the ground and really connected to the issues that are happening within communities or within any of our stakeholder lenses? So quite frankly, um, that was a challenge, but it was a challenge I was willing to accept um, because quite often we're, we're attached, um, when we're working in the, this field, we're attached to bureaucratic red tape. And the one great thing about uh, Safe Project is there's no bureaucratic red tape. It's what can we do? How can we fill the gaps and seams within all of these different initiative le- and, the, and the lenses of our stakeholders? And that's quite frankly what we do as a whole. Um, so as Sandy mentioned, we have our safe campuses, safe communities, safe veterans, and safe workplaces. How we meet those individual initiatives and those stakeholders is going to be different, and how we have those conversations will be different. Uh, how we approach, for example, administrators in the safe campuses arena, we're going to have those conversations from a different perspective or a different lens than perhaps we would have them with safe veterans. So we had to build out these different these initiatives through different products, um, and programs that fit the needs of those uh, stakeholders that were involved. So I'll give the safe uh, workplaces for as, as an example. I cannot come into a safe workplace and say, you need to have naloxone um, everywhere because they don't even identify as part of the solution. They don't think that they have a problem, which um, we know, quite frankly, is not the case. But how we approach a safe workplace, okay, you may not want to have naloxone, Maybe you could take our no shame pledge, Um, just saying, hey, I understand that addiction is a disease. I'm willing to help individuals um, through that process and navigate the systems that they need. And I'm I'm willing to do something or do my part to just acknowledge this portion of it. If we can start off with um, having them sign the no shame pledge, we're in. So now we have an opportunity to actually have a conversation with that safe workplace and say, okay, now you've done a great job there. You're right, maybe you don't have a problem, but let's go to the next step. Let's stay preventative in this this opportunity and let's uh, distribute to Terra bags or safe disposal disposal pouches. If you're willing to do that, then we can continue to prevent the problem in the workplace. Are you willing to do that? And we just take these baby steps and we meet people where they are. Are you willing to put safe signage in your workplace or in your factory. If you're willing to do that, I call it the the Monty Hall approach. Pick door number one, door number two, or door number three, but just pick a door. Um, And I think the one great thing about our organization, uh, uh, Joni, is that one, we're not all recovery inclusive. We actually work with or or have um, staff members and team members who have never experienced recovery or addiction and those that have. So we bring these lenses and these perspective to the table and we work through them and navigate um, together, which is pretty amazing. And typically that doesn't happen, happen in the behavioral health arena. And then we also look outside of the behavioral health arena. So we don't continue to educate people that we know are already educated. So I want to talk to you, for example, about addiction, just as I want to talk to my local barista about addiction or my school system about addiction. So having all of that together, um, we are really a force to be reckoned with because we don't box people out in terms of partnerships. 
we make sure to bring people in and we scan for inclusivity rather than exclusivity. And it's been working. So I'm, I'm truly excited about where we were, where we are now and where we're going. I think that's awesome. And I think in, inclusivity is absolutely vital, especially with this. You know, this is not a political issue. You know, like I say, this is not a socio, it's, it's not an um, economic issue. It's not, I mean, except for that we need funding as, as the Admiral spoke about, but it, it, we have to include everybody because it affects everybody. You know, and if somebody walking out there is thinking that addiction doesn't affect them because their children and their grandchildren and their brothers and sisters are not addicted, they're dreaming. It affects every single one of us. And I know I'm getting on my you know, soapbox. So, well, you know, I'll, what's, I'll what's really interesting is, is um, when you overcome your own stigma, uh, as, as we have, uh, frankly, and you're willing to speak out about it. It's, it's amazing how many people will come up to you on the side and whisper in your ears, like, you know, my brother, my, my son, my, my whatever is, have, is struggling with a problem. Do you have any advice for us? And so a lot of people are keeping this bottled up because they are worried about how people are going to think about them. Whereas if, if you said, hey, my son or my daughter or my brother, you know, has diabetes or has cancer, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You know, I hope that works out well. Uh, it, so that uh, stigma really is public enemy number one here. It is. You're absolutely right. And we have approached mm. um, maybe some better known addicts who are in recovery and they don't want to tell their story. Mm. And I respect that. I do respect it. But personally, I respect more those like Brandy who are willing to share their story because when they do, that story resonates with somebody who's listening. And the more people in recovery are willing to share their story, and they're not pretty. I mean, there's nothing pretty about addiction, but the more they're willing to do that, they're helping other people. Brandy, can I go back to you for just a second? Because tell me a little bit about, more about these bags, Deterra bags. I, it, you don't have one you can show, do you? Oh, I don't. As a matter of fact, I just gave it to my mom and and I can sprinkle that in a little bit. Um, You know what? I'll get a picture off the Internet and I'll put it over the video because I've never heard of it. And as we as we discussed before the podcast, I could have used one a few years ago. No, and it's pretty interesting because my mom came down one day. She said, hey, do you have one of those bags? And I was like, absolutely. Here's one right here. Um, so, so those bags are actually doTERRA pouches and they are safe disposal pouches. What was interesting and, and quite frankly, with those pouches, they eliminate, um, any, any drug, uh, prescription over the counter films, creams that you have in your household that could perhaps be, um, uh, tempting to anyone, whether it's youth and young adult, the aging population, whoever's in your household. Um, and what you do is you actually take the bag and you open it up. And I'm so sorry, Joni, I should have probably had one here. It's okay. I'll find it's, one. <laughs> it's a carbon activated um, chemical that you put in there, very environmentally safe. And then you would put your, uh, just a little bit of water in there based on the, on the directions and your prescription over the counter or prescription medications. You'd seal that baby up, shake it. Um, well, you'd wait about 30 seconds, seal it up and then shake it. And then you just throw it in your trash can. It's amazing. And I will tell you, uh, wait, Brandy, but how do people get them? Oh, so right now, typically we've partnered with, uh, doTERRA, 
So we actually rev up our campaign in October and April during drug take back time, uh, where you can actually go on a website, a specific website. But now at this point, you would actually uh, go on Amazon or you can um, link through safeproject.us to request your uh, pouch there. But if you want to purchase a doTERRA pack, you would go on Amazon um, or learn more from doTERRAsystem.com. Okay, and I, Tony, I, just looked, have, I just looked it up while you were speaking, and it's D-E-T-E-R-R-A. That's correct. Okay, good. Sorry. Jody, just a couple Sorry. of things to add to what uh, Brandy described. What we like about these pouches, because there are other other mm-hmm. methods you can uh, get to dis- dispose of drugs, is that it, it doesn't just immobilize the drug. It actually renders it you know, useless. It's not, it basically destroys the drug. So so there's that. And it's also incredibly environmentally friendly. You toss it in a in a landfill and you shouldn't feel guilty about that because it's going to decompose. And we prefer to give these things away for free. And we do this every fall and every April, as, as Brandy mentioned, I think we, we um, this, this October 22,000 free pouches uh, we gave away in all 48 States. Uh, the, the top five States that asked for them in case you're interested, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Missouri, but okay. we got requests from every state. And so uh, we, we, do partner with the Terra to try to get free bags out there. But in between, you know, the October and April timeframe, you just have to go and buy one. They're not expensive. Got it. Do you have, as part of the various programs that you do, do you have speakers that go around to schools and workplaces and veterans organizations? Yeah, we, we I'll, I'll, I'll t- touch on one and I'll let Brandy fill in the rest. Um, before uh, COVID hit, we were going to high schools and we felt we had a pretty powerful presentation for high schools. We would, I would tell our story uh, and you could see the, and I, the way I would tell it was the kids could live vicariously through Jonathan's experience. And you could see them sitting on the edge of their seat. You know, what happened to this kid? Do I know somebody like this? Am I going through some of these same things? And that was there. And then we would intersperse it with just a little bit on the science of addiction because again, these kids are sponges. They, they really want to know what's going on inside their brains. And when you can talk to them about opioid receptors and how they become desensitized and the whole thing, they're fascinated by that. And then we would close it out with a very powerful talk from a young man who used to work for us and is now often at business school, doing very well, who was in recovery, who told his extremely powerful story of, of ending up in addiction based on an athletic injury where he was prescribed opioids that took care of not only the pain from the athletic injury, but the pain from his anxiety. And he was, became addicted very quickly. And without telling his entire story, it was very powerful. And you could see the kids sitting on the edge of their seat for him as well. So yes, we, we did do that. We want to recommence doing that uh, as soon as the time is right. Uh, and uh, yes. And then we do have other, other um, and, uh, personal engagements and Brandy, I'll turn it over to you for those. Yeah, so um, we do some speaking engagements. Like uh, Sandy said, COVID really hit us hard. Um, so we're very cautious. Uh, we do want to build a, a cadre of speakers from a Speakers Bureau uh, perspective. Sandy had mentioned that we had started off in um, the high school, some of the middle schools, and having those conversations. And what we want to do is actually develop that even further and scale that up nationally, where we can offer that as a, a front leading or an entry point into school systems and other areas where we can talk to youth and young adult, Girl Scouts, um, Boy Scouts, the the clubs that are associated with youth and young adult. 
But we also realized that it was important for us to not only uh, do the speaking engagement, but to start to build a cadre of resources and educational tools uh, that will continue those conversations. So we don't want to necessarily just rip the Band-Aid off, say this is this is where we are, and then be one and done. So we've started what we call Safe Choices. Um, and Safe Choices really front leads with not necessarily just prevention, but individual youth and young adult who may perhaps be struggling at the moment and developing life skills um, and how to develop coping skills and resiliency skills um, through that process. So we're doing that. Um, that's in the development now. Um, we're really excited about that and touching uh, youth and young adult in that respect. So that's um, that can actually be found on our SAFE uh, project website as well. Uh, and we're almost ready to launch that uh, landing page. And yes, that's awesome. And just again, for the listeners, it's safeproject.us. You got it. Listen, I cannot thank both of you enough for taking the time out of your schedules. I know how busy you are because you're dealing with this pandemic and it's it's a full-time job, could be 24-7. So I really appreciate you being willing to talk to us today. Just anything you'd like to add before we end off? I just want to say how grateful we are for a couple of things. One is the wonderful staff who works for us. Uh, these people come show up at work, whether they're working from home or in our office in Arlington, Virginia, uh, with that this mission in mind. Uh, some of them are in recovery. Some of them are not. But they all have the same dedication. And we also want to thank you uh, for your tremendous advocacy and, and, and spreading the message and, and engaging people and listening to people uh, about uh, this terrible epidemic, uh, because it's, this, is a, this is something we can win. Uh, we just have to uh, keep our minds engaged, be organized, get the resources we need. And it's people like you that, that are going to help make it happen. So thanks a lot, Joni. Thank you. Brandy, any final words of wisdom? I, I honestly have to echo um, what Sandy said. And the one thing that is amazing to me is when I, we first started this podcast, I asked why you got involved. Um, and it wasn't through lived experience. It wasn't necessarily through life, life experience, but you recognize that there was a problem and this was a huge problem. And this problem is only getting worse. Uh, we are losing over 96,000 Americans every single year to this, um, to the opioid, or sorry, to the addiction epidemic in general. And I can tell you firsthand as a person in long-term recovery, uh, I experience death and loss every single day. Um, so to know that you are in this battle with us is extremely um, heartwarming to me and really have no necessarily any connection to that. Um, but just getting this education out there, um, I am very, very grateful for you because it does take a village um, and it takes a village of family members, friends, colleagues and people who just care. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening today. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Please, please, please don't wait until the holidays are done to get into treatment. I know I keep saying this over and over again, but I cannot repeat it enough. If you're sitting there thinking you just want your loved one with you over the holidays and you will address the addiction in the new year, it's a really bad idea. Their addiction is not going to take a holiday and it could very well lead to overdose and death. Sorry for the downer, but we're thankful for you. Thank you for Thank you so much for listening. Thank, 
Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to Sandy and Brandy for all the work that they're doing. Y'all take care, and we'll be back again with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.